Hello, this is A Life More Wild. It's a podcast where we'll take you into the great outdoors and help you connect with nature. Later, we'll be hearing from Tom Lewis of Monocal Moor, who took sandwiches for hikers and turned it into this amazing foodie empire in the Trossachs. But today, we're here with Gil Meller. It's not necessarily all about harvesting wild garlic. It's just about the, the moment of being here, really. Gil Meller is a river cottage chef, teacher, forager, wonderful cook, and he's going to take us down through the woods, pick some wild garlic, get some sea kale, and make us something amazing on the beach. I'm just taking this basket off the shelf. It's full of stones from the beach. But I'm going to use it to pick some of the wild food that we find. Pop it in here. That's the plan. <laughs> My name's Gil Meller. I'm a, a chef and a food writer and a cookery teacher. We're stood outside the house where I live, near a place called Lyme Regis. That's my nearest town. And we're looking out over the wood. And River Cottage, which I have sort of big associations with, is only a stone's throw from here. That's where I really learned to cook. I met a huge amount of really influential people there. And it sort of gave me the breadth of knowledge that I have today, really. But it wasn't till I was sort of 18, 19 that I really started to develop a love of cooking. And um, it wasn't out of choice, actually. It was out of sort of necessity in that we had our first daughter, my wife and I, when we were very young. So I was just 18. So I sort of fell into a kitchen for the cash, really. And over time... I sort of developed a, a real passion for it. And I sort of knew how to bring flavours together and, and I knew how to sort of taste food and adjust things because my mum was always so good at that. You know, that was how she cooked, by, by tasting and then balancing seasoning and textures. And it was just... If, I think if you, if you grow up eating good food, you know what good food tastes like. And then maybe if you're interested in cooking, you can apply that knowledge. So, so we've just walked down from the house into the woodland below. Um, once we're through the woodland, we can take the path down to the beach. So at this time of year, there's quite a lot of wild food available. You just need to sort of look out for it. We're going to find some fairly recognisable plants. And the first one that a lot of people will be familiar with is wild garlic. And not too far from here, there's a really good patch of it. Wild garlic's very easy to identify. You can usually smell it before you see it. We're just walking by some here. When you step over the garlic, you can really smell it then because it sort of busts the leaf and lets all those oils into the air, I'm sure. 
got a very strong uh, aromatic scent. A bit oniony, a bit garlicky, but it is, it is sort of unique. The leaf is sort of emerald green. It's very vibrant, but its shape is what gives it away. I suppose you could call it feather-shaped or spear-shaped. And we've got some flower buds on the end of these stalks. They're also sort of spear-shaped or teardrop-shaped. I'll pick one of those. I'm just taking a knife and cutting the wild garlic at the base. It's lovely to spend 10, 15 minutes just sitting here in the wood. Got the dogs with me. It's not necessarily all about harvesting wild garlic. It's just about the, the moment of being here, really. And sort of just listening to what's going on around you. The birds. Listening to the wind in the trees watching, touching. That's what's so lovely about foraging. It's not necessarily about the, the final plate of food that you, you sit down to. It's about the whole journey. It's about picking up the basket, putting your rucksack on your back and, and heading out the door with the hope of maybe bringing something back. But it's the journey that's the most interesting bit. Tucked in down here, you see this purple flower here. That's a wood violet. This is edible. It's a very delicate purple petaled flower with some, some dark purple veins. It's a strange shaped uh, flower actually, sort of dragon-like almost. Um, I've picked and garnished salads with these. Gentle, subtle flavor, very pretty incorporate the the wild garlic petals and the and the wood violets in a, in a simple salad it's lovely it's the more common things that I enjoy picking we've just walked by one now <laughs> the infamous stinging nettle as you probably know they're edible and they're very delicious, they're plentiful, and they're completely free, and we should probably be eating a lot more nettles as a society, and you can do so much with them. They are a great alternative to our more familiar sort of cultivated greens, chard, spinach, kale.
so we're going to wander through the through the woods here and then we'll get down onto the the old track that takes us to the beach we'll have to scoot down under this fallen tree limb there what's nice about this particular beach is that the access is quite limited so there's only one or two ways to actually get there once you come out on the beach it's usually empty anyway even though it's it's high summer you might only see a handful of families down there hello it seems like pond water down there today. Yeah, beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, I bet. Come on, boys. Come on, come here. Right, so we're just about to come out on the beach now. Uh, this is the most magical bit. It seems like the path will go on forever, but then it opens up to this expanse, and oh my God. This is like, you're seeing it at its absolute best. So you've got this sort of arcing bay flanked by some quite steep woodland. The trees almost come right down to the shoreline in places. And what you've got are all these plants. And that is a plant called sea kale. Sea kale is one of my favourite, favourite wild plants to pick and cook and eat. So, should we go and have a look at it? Sea kale used to be quite popular and was cultivated and still is uh, by people who know. But for the most part, it's considered a wild plant. You could go a mile up the beach and you wouldn't find any sea kale, but here it, it loves it. What we've got here are these, um, these sort of minty green young leaves. And then the young growth is a sort of deep purple pink. The young stuff is very tender and very delicious and it can be eaten raw. It's sweet, it's got a slight bitter note. And actually, when it's that young, it doesn't really need cooking because you're tasting it at its most pure, if you like. And you really get to appreciate the texture and how juicy it is and the, the sort of flavour dimensions. But what's really special about this time of year is you get the flowers. This is a, is a head of sea kale in flower and right there in the centre of this sort of rose of leaves is a, is a broccoli spear and it's only uh, here for a, a matter of weeks. It's the, the flowering head of the sea kale and it looks just like purple sprouting broccoli. This is the best bit to eat. It, it really is incredible. And this plant has quite a few flowering tips and I'm just going to cut these little florets, these flowering tops of the, the sea kale. And we'll um, pop them in the basket and then take them over to the, 
the campfire spot that I have up the beach there and we'll get a little fire going and taste them. So when you're picking any wild food, it's nice not to cut too much. Leave some for, for nature, leave, leave some for, for wildlife. You just take what you need. What's really nice about coming down here and making a fire is that you can do everything at a much slower pace. You don't have to rush things. It's not really a place for rushing down here. And while that's burning, I'm gonna pop down to the, the water's edge there and fill up my pan with seawater because we're gonna cook the sea kale in seawater. There we go, got a pan of water, lovely and clear, so it's nice and clean. just trying to balance the pan on three stones so it sits over the fire. I don't tend to bring grills down if I can help it. If you can nestle the pan directly in the fire then you've got no need for a grill. Just put a lid on the pan and it'll come to the simmer quite quickly. Okay, so this has come to the boil. I'm just going to lift the lid, pop the sea kale in, pop the lid back on. We'll only cook it for a minute or so. Then I'll drain it. Seeing as we pick the wild garlic, I'll make a quick wild garlic butter, which we can just pour over the sea kale. So, I tend not to bother with plates or anything like that. When I come down, we just find big flat round stones and eat off those, or straight from the pan. And that tends to save on washing up. They're always clean because it rains and they get washed that way. So I just lift this out, pop it on here. Just get rid of the water. Pop the pan back on the heat. 
and I did bring some butter so we're gonna scoop that out into the pan just let that melt and begin to sizzle gonna take a handful of wild garlic and then if I can find my knife just cut this up quite coarsely chuck it into the butter Doesn't need much cooking. I'm just taking the, the sort of harsh edge off the, the garlic. And there we go, very simple wild garlic butter. I'll just pour it over the sea kale. A Little bit of black pepper, because it really is good with, with the kale. That's it. That is the business. Very good. You see that little thing we just did? So simple. Two very readily identifiable wild food plants cooked simply but so so delicious that's that's what makes foraging special and actually cooking outside you know you get to experience the way things sort of used to be done That was Gil Meller down at his local Dorset beach. Now, there's a great tradition of settlements forming where paths connect, from the UK's market towns to camps around oases in the desert. While that might feel like the sort of thing that belongs to history, there's a sort of modern version taking place in Scotland's Trossachs National Park. Tom Lewis is the chef and creative force behind Monocle Moor, home to two amazing places to stay, Pilot Panther and the Ferry Waiting Room. There's now a hotel, restaurant, bakery, bistro, even a chip shop. But it all started with his mother selling tea and scones to passing hikers. So set the scene for everyone. Monaco Moor, where are we? We're an hour and a half from the rest of the world. I'm an hour and a half from Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dundee, Oban. The Glen itself was six miles up a single track road. We overlook Loch Foyle, Loch Doyne. Up behind the hotel, you've got Stabinion, 10th highest mountain in Great Britain. There's nothing higher south of us in the UK. So it's a magical place. How did it start out? My mother wanted to buy my brother a bicycle. So she put a sign at the bottom of the road saying tea and scones. And then she fancied a British racing green four-door Arga. So she changed the sign from tea and scones to tea and scones soup and sandwiches. And then she did a bit of B&B. 
And then always did a carafe of wine with an evening meal. Someone got very upset, said she was doing it illegally. So she applied for license, and that was back in 1991. And that's when the hotel started. It's a lovely story, really. My mother was completely blind, and she did everything. The only thing she can't do is read a book. My mother and my father, they were the true visionaries, and I've really just taken it over. Wasn't there something when we were up, you were telling me about driving with her? Yeah. <laughs> well, like, when you live in a rural area, you know, 17 miles to town, local shop is eight miles away, and your mother's blind. We used to just sit in the lap and we'd steer. She did the pedals and gears until our legs were long enough. We used to say uphill, downhill, you know? It was yeah, like, amazing. she was an amazing woman. So then where did, when do you come in? Where's your love of food come from? Where does your involvement uh, start? I came back about 25 25 years ago, maybe just over. I was farming, traveling around the world. It didn't seem to be a future in that. So um, I learned to cook, listened to two people on the radio one week, a guy called Nicola Dinis. He was on Desert Island Dis, and a famous Scottish chef who sadly just died this week was David Wilson. I heard them both speak on the radio with such passion. And I thought, right, I'll just learn to cook. So I bought a book called La Russe Gastronomique, and that's where it all started. And what, you just over, just taught yourself? Yeah, my mother was doing it before me, so I cooked what she did, and then I created my own style. And because I farmed all my life, I just bought things that were in season because they were cheaper. Have to make money is quite important. And at the time, you know, that was before field to plate and all this type of stuff. It was just really economics, but uh, you know, now it's all become fashionable. So that's that's right at the heart of more, is it? The the sourcing policy, it's where it all comes from. It's all about the food and the wine, you know. We have our own gardens here, but to, obviously we can't produce enough. So the organic fruit and vegetables that come from 17 miles away, Tom Nahar, who are amazing, we tell them, you know, we'll take all the ugly bits. You know, because if you think most people buy vegetables when they're not cooked, so they want them to look pretty. But we can take the bits that are a bit ugly, or the tops off the board beans, or, you know, when the rocket flowers, we we'll use the flowers. We just say, send me when it's good. And we'll make something with it. So it is a really important part of everything we do. I think that's something that people could take into their own lives. I think it's something that needs I've, to spread. Yeah, I, I, and it's really quite an easy thing to do. You know, I think it's, you know, we've been a big fan of slow food for a long time. And when people ask the question, what is slow food? And really, for me, slow food is where does it come from? You know, and if we can buy British first and then... You know, and if it comes from somewhere else in the world or somewhere, find out who produced it. Was it a small producer? And I think, you know, to ask the question is the most, every time you pick something up, if it smells good and you've got a choice of two things, find out where it comes from and use that as your guide. So when you came back, did you just sort of think, I have to be no, here now? Was it the I mean, landscape? Was it the place? You know, it, I mean, it's bizarre. Took, you know, this year has made me think about things a lot, you know, and. It's amazing. The view out my office window, I was notorious for throwing phones, right? Now, when I built my office here, I have a little window right beside my desk. When I'm having one of those conversations, I just keep talking, look out the window and thinking, it's not that bad. <laughs> what is the view then? What, what are you looking it's, at? I mean, I'm looking right down Loch Foyle, across the front of the hotel. I mean, and you've got those amazing greens in Scotland. You know, they're almost like psychedelic. You know, because it's been brown all winter and suddenly the leaves have just popped. There's a big beech tree and a chestnut tree there. The larch have just gone green again. You know, they've been golden all winter. And I could, even more annoyingly, there's a ewe and twin lambs on the lawn right now eating something they shouldn't be eating. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do people respond to the location when they when they come? Did they come for the food and then get struck Look, by the the place? You know, if you think they've driven up, you know, say they've left Edinburgh, Glasgow, so they've had a bloody big argument at the house, picked the kids up late or whatever else, they've got in the car, you know, the husband or the wife's been driving a bit faster in a dual carriageway to Junction 10, you know. Suddenly they've turned off the motorway, off the stone and come here. The road's got a bit slower, so they've driven a bit slower. So suddenly you're not so bad. You get the calendar. Oh, I still quite like you, actually. And then when you turn up that six miles up the Glen Road, no Roman built that road. It's so bloody awful, right? So you've got to go really slowly. And then you start realising, God, it's beautiful here. You know, when you go right beside the loch and, you know, this time of year, you see the curlers and the swans and, the, you know, we've got native Canadian geese. So by the time they actually get here, they're a bit more relaxed. You can see their shoulders drop. It is a magical part of the world, you know. And we, we try and encourage that sense of quiet. We try to turn off all the outside lights at night and that type of stuff because people just can't believe how dark it is and see the stars and, you know, hear the nature of the deer on the front lawn or the red squirrels. Or We've got pine martins, which are supposedly endangered, except for at the bloody hotel, where they're that gallus. Our night porter used to put feed out every night and she'd come out the roof with her young kits and eat from the bowl. I mean, it's incredible. You no, know, I've, done I've, done I've come that down that road and I know exactly yeah. what you mean. As soon as you said it, I thought, yeah, I do know what you mean. You're rolling down that road and it's bumpy and it's curvy and you end up going about five miles an hour. Yeah. And then you think, I don't want to go any faster than this ever again in the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's absolutely lovely. It's just stunning. I mean, you can, I guess you can hike straight off the back of the hotel up into the mountains, can't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, literally just walk, literally you come out of the hotel, hang a right, take another right and walk straight up the hill. And then you've got red deer, golden eagles. There are falcons at the top end. Um, half a mile on the road is a big rock, and that's known as the cuckoo stone. And it's because it's often the first place you hear the cuckoo, because you hear the echo down the glen. And when the stags start rutting in the back end, if you stand there and hear the stags rut, you can hear them coming from three glens meeting there. And it, it really is amazing. What would you say your favourite time of year is then? Oh, you're torn because spring and autumn, you know, the first pea, some fresh white asparagus, you know, the first leaves, but then you get to the autumn and then the mushrooms come. And we go every day. I keep a motorbike at the back door to go and pick mushrooms every day. And, uh, and your hands in the, in the autumn smell of the ground, of moss and grass and other stuff where you've been out picking every day. But then the summer comes, like the first Scottish tomato, you know, a fresh strawberry, a new season tomato. But then again, you, you know, your first apple. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. All right, so you've got so much going on. Like, doesn't it just get overwhelming? Yeah, yeah. I, I've got a little thing which I do here. And I, I think it's because my mother was blind. And I often, if there's a lot going on, I will stand still for a brief second and close my eyes. And suddenly everything is exactly where it should be. You know, you get out your car in Scotland and the first thing you do is smell it. You taste it. There's a breeze. You can hear the movement of the trees or the grass or you hear it. And it really is quite evocative, you know. I mean, it works for me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for A Life More Wild. I hope that's whetted your appetite and got you inspired to go on the hunt for food that might be closer than you think. In the episode notes, you'll find links to Monocle Moore, Gil's courses and books, as well as where to buy our own book, Stay Wild. You can join us on Instagram at Canopy and Stars and remember to hit that follow button on your podcast app to hear all the other episodes. Until next time, stay wild. Well.